0: This is Getting to Know Your Bible, a program dedicated to the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's Billy Lambert.
1: It is a pleasure to be with you today on Getting to Know Your Bible. We do appreciate those of you that are watching today, especially if this is your first time to view Getting to Know Your Bible. We have those who watch every time we come on the air. We thank you. For being a loyal uh, viewer of this telecast, we want you to encourage others to watch. Now today on Getting to Know Your Bible, we're going to talk about God's viewpoint on a subject. And the only viewpoint that really matters is what God sees, how God feels, God's viewpoint. We want to talk about God's viewpoint on the empty tomb. I hope that you'll stay tuned. Now today on our telecast we are going to be offering a free Bible correspondence course and I'd like to assure you that it is free, there is no charge to you, and we want you to have it. I know sometimes we're skeptical about things that are offered like this, but may I assure you that it is free and we want you along with others that... Uh, that to be along with others that have already studied the Bible course in the privacy of their homes. And we want to pause now that you can learn more about the course, that you can learn how to receive it.
0: To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non denominational, it's based on the Bible, it's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible. Post Office Box 314, Somerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free
1: 1-877-711-5214. I'm going to be reading from Mark, the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 2. There early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Who was crucified? He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There will you you will see him, as he said to you. You know there have been many dark days in the history of this old world. It it was a dark day when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and God drove them from the Garden and sin and suffering and sorrow entered into the world. It was a dark day when the children of Israel instructed Aaron to make for them a calf of, made of gold while Moses was upon Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments that would forbid such. They were breaking one of the very commandments God was to give to them. That was a dark day. It was a dark day when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941 launching the United States into World War II. It was a dark day when some terrorists flew airplanes into the United States and into buildings, destroying thousands and thousands of lives and waking people up to the fact that we are vulnerable to attack. It is a dark day when there is a tsunami that comes ashore and wipes out life in its path, leaving behind destruction and devastation. It is a dark day when a tornado comes sweeping across the land, leaving death in its wake, leaving destruction in its wake. You see, there have been many dark days in the history of the world. But the darkest day of all was the day that Jesus Christ died upon the cross of Calvary. I want you to picture Jesus on that cross. There he has a crown of thorns on his head. Can you imagine what that was like to wear a crown of thorns? I, I, I'm very uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, it hurts if I just get a small splinter in one of my fingers. Can you imagine a crown made out of thorns that pierce your brow? Look at the nails in his hands. And now look at his feet. And there he is, the Son of God, nailed to the old rugged cross from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he's on that cross. And while Jesus was hanging on that cross, the sun refused to shine. The earth was shrouded in darkness. And there he is on the cross, the Son of God. He is dead but his body must be removed before sundown. There are two friends that come to take the body, Joseph and Nicodemus, and with loving, tender, gentle hands, they remove his body from the cross, and they take him to place him in a tomb where never man has laid. There is a mammoth stone that is rolled against the mouth of that grave, a stone that would be made in a circular fashion, more like a wheel, weighing hundreds of pounds. And there are soldiers stationed just outside to make certain that the Son of God does not leave that tomb or that no one can take that body. But death cannot hold him in that tomb. All day Friday goes by, or rather Friday evening and then all day Saturday. And then early on Sunday morning, the women come to the tomb. This is on the first day of the week, according to Luke 24 and verse 1. And when they come to the tomb, the stone has been rolled away. Well, on their way, they're talking among themselves and they're wanting to know, who's going to roll away the stone for us? Well, the head had already been rolled away. And when they came, They were told, He is risen. He is alive. You see, the grave could not hold the Son of God. Well, someone says, well, Brother Lambert, how do we know Jesus was raised from the dead? Oh, there have always been those who have Questioned his resurrection that there, there there are different ideas or different uh, uh, theories that people have as to what happened to his body. Some say that Jesus did not die on the cross and that he merely swooned in the uh, and when he got into the dampness of that tomb that he revived and then he was able to remove the stone, overcome the soldiers, and then people began to allege that he had been raised from the dead. I want you to think about the agony that Jesus endured. Unbelievable suffering. While you think about the scourging that Jesus received that that was a scourging that would be enough to put the average preacher out of the ministry. A scourging that was so severe that some of the disciples fled in fear. Then Jesus finally is made to carry his own cross to Calvary. And there Jesus is nailed to that cross. He died on that cross. Jesus Christ was raised on the third day, according to Scripture. He did not swoon. First of all, when you think about all the agony that he endured, the torture he endured, how could a person in a weak condition like that move that stone? And how could he overcome those soldiers that are stationed outside that had been commissioned to make the the tomb as sure as they could? His body was not stolen. or He did not swoon, nor was his body stolen, as some allege. Some think that the enemies of Jesus stole his body. The Jews, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the rulers, the soldiers... All had Jesus where they wanted him. They wanted Jesus in that grave. They they wanted Jesus dead. Thus, they had no motive for taking that body out of the grave. Then the disciples did not steal his body. They were not expecting Jesus to be resurrected. And why would they risk their lives? to steal the body of a man that, that some thought was an imposter. Why would they do that when they would shrink in fear while he was still alive? His body was not stolen. Some think with Jesus just that people hallucinated and they just think they saw Jesus after his resurrection. Well, I suppose it's possible for two people to have the same uh, idea of something they might think they see. And if you want to refer to that as a hallucination. But I want you to think about all of the witnesses there were to the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, he appeared to the women. And then he appeared to two of the disciples and there was his appearance on the road to Emmaus. There was his appearance to the eleven in the upper room. And then he appeared to five hundred brethren at once. And then last of all, he appeared to Saul of Tarsus, a man who persecuted Christians. You, You imagine going into court. Maybe you're going to be on trial. And your attorney says, don't worry, we've got people who are going to testify on your behalf. We have all the witnesses that are needed. How many do you have? We have about three good witnesses. And they have irrefutable testimony that they're going to give in court. And I really feel good about your case. And you breathe a sigh of relief, I've got three people that are going to testify on my behalf. You think about all of the people who testified to Jesus' resurrection. The women, the disciples, the eleven, the five hundred, Saul of Tarsus. There's overwhelming testimony from those people that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Why can you imagine being there in the city of Jerusalem the day as Pentecost? And you hear the Apostle Peter preaching about Jesus and about his resurrection according to Acts chapter 2, verse 24, whom God hath raised up. And and maybe you're one of the persons who was guilty of putting Jesus in that tomb. Now, if you knew that Jesus Christ was an imposter, that would have been the time, that would have been the place for you to disprove his claim of being the Son of God. But the reason those people in the city of Jerusalem did not produce a body, when Peter began to preach the resurrection gospel of Christ, was because Jesus, they did not have the body, and Jesus died on that cross, and He was raised from the dead by God's power, thus declaring Him to be His Son. In Romans 1 and 4, Paul wrote, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and He lives. And one of the things that makes me believe that is the change in His disciples. Now you think about the change in the Apostle Peter. Here's a man who denied him three times. When they asked him, when the the enemies asked uh, Peter while they were gathering around the fire about his uh, relationship with him, he said, I don't know the man. He even denied that he knew him. But later, Peter's willing to lay his life down for the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you account for a change in a person like that? That he would would go from a man who would be a moral coward to a person who would be willing to face the lions and and death itself on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just don't know any other way to explain it. You think about Saul of Tarsus. We read first of all about him in the 7th chapter of Acts when Stephen was being stoned and Saul was consenting unto his death. And he is a man who persecuted men and women because they were Christians. that They were of the way, the way of Christ. And yet, after the Lord appeared to him on the Damascus highway in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus became eventually the great Apostle Paul, the man who began to love that which he had loathed and he began to preach that which it once had persecuted. And that's the influence that Jesus had on the life of this man. Well, one of the main reasons that I am convinced that he was raised from the dead is because I believe the Bible. And the Bible teaches Jesus has been resurrected. In Psalms, the 16th chapter and verse 10, listen to what David said. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption." Years later, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes that prophecy as he's preaching to the people gathered in the city of Jerusalem. And in the 31st verse of that chapter, in Acts chapter 2, he explains that prophecy. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul is not left in hell, Neither did he see corruption. You see, when Peter wrote in Psalm 1610, he had reference to the future resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus has been raised from the dead by God's power. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, Paul is at Mars Hill in Athens and he preached, he's preaching to them about the unknown God that they were worshiping. And he, in verse 30 he said, The times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead. According to Paul in Romans 4.25, he was wounded for our offenses. He was raised again for our justification. So the Bible teaches Jesus is raised. He was raised from the dead the third day according to the fulfillment of prophecy 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 4. But what does all of that mean to us? We're talking about God's viewpoint on a tomb that became empty. What does the resurrection of Christ teach us? I think one of the things that it tells us is that all the claims that Jesus made are true. We could claim to be a lots of things that we're not. I might claim to be an astronaut, but that would not make me an astronaut. My claims would be false claims. Someone might claim to be a a great, a great NFL player, but just making that claim does not prove their claims. And Jesus made certain claims, and his claims were proved. First of all, Jesus claimed to be God's Son. He claimed to be God in the flesh. 1 Timothy three sixteen. Jesus said, "I am the Father of one." Jesus said, "He that has seen me has seen the Father." Jesus claimed to fulfill prophecy, and indeed he did. In Luke chapter twenty four and verse forty four. Jesus said the things written about him of the law and the Psalms and the prophets must be fulfilled. And they were fulfilled. The emphasis of the New Testament is on Jesus as the one who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy and prediction. For, in, for example, in Acts 8:35, Philip began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus, we're told. What scripture? Isaiah chapter 53. Verses 7 and 8, was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep dumb before his shearer, so he openeth not his mouth. So when he preached to this man in Acts 8, he was preaching Jesus out of the Old Testament. Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy and prediction. And Jesus claimed that he was going to raise the temple after its destruction He made that claim in John chapter 2 and verse 19. They did not understand what Jesus meant. They thought that he meant that he would raise again the actual temple, the literal temple that had been destroyed in the city. It would be destroyed in A.D. 70. But Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. It would be killed, but it would be raised again from the dead. But another thing that makes me believe in Jesus' resurrection and it's very convincing to me is that we have a living Savior. Hebrews 7 in verse 25 says, He ever liveth, He ever liveth to make intercession for us. And He is our Savior. If we were to go to the tomb of Buddha wherever He might be buried, He's still in the tomb. If we could find the tomb of Confucius, he'd still be in the tomb. If we could find the tomb of Mohammed, he's still in the tomb. If we were able to find the tomb of John the Baptist, he's still in the tomb. If we could find the tomb of Father Abraham, he's still in the tomb. If we could find the tomb of Alexander Campbell, he is still in the tomb. But you go to the tomb of Jesus, and he's not there. He is risen. Jesus continues to live. In er in every sense of the word, Jesus Christ is our contemporary. And because Jesus is our living Savior, Jesus can help us bear the burdens of life. He said in Matthew the, tw- the 11th chapter in verse 28, Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And Jesus wants us to take the burdens off our backs and let him help bear those burdens. Jesus said, I am with you always, the way, even to the end of the world, Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Jesus, through the pen of Peter, said, Casting all of your care on Him, for He cares for you, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. You see, He is a Savior who can help us with all the burdens that we have in this life. And He's also a Savior who intercedes for us, a living Savior. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. And that's before the throne of God Almighty. Well, someone says, well, how relevant is the resurrection to us today? Here we are, Brother Lambert, living in the 21st century, and I just don't see the relevancy of it. And let me quickly say, the resurrection calls us out of sin and into Christ. And we obey the gospel of Jesus by believing in Him by repenting of our sins, by confessing our faith in Him, by being baptized into Christ, Galatians 3, verse 27. And we live the faithful Christian life. And when it comes our time to quit the walks of men, we can close our eyelids to sleep with a living hope, a lively hope, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because Jesus lived and died, I know we can live again. I want to thank you for watching today. And until we meet again, may the Lord bless you and keep you, is my prayer.
0: From my very first day at Faulkner, it's been an incredible experience. There's so much to do around campus and I know that I've made friends that will last a lifetime. I love using my iPad in my classes. I feel really prepared for the future, plus the use of e-text helps me cut costs on textbooks. At
1: Faulkner University, we seek to educate the whole person, including mind, spirit, and soul. That's what makes us different from most other universities. Visit our website today to see what Faulkner has for you.